Hello and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week, I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. Hey there, my wise friends, and welcome to episode 62 of Collective Wisdom. And I'm feeling like there's a lot of magic in the air today. I'm recording this episode on the 1st of June, which as well as being my little niece Isla's eighth birthday, happy birthday Isla, and the eve of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which whether you're a royalist or not, I think you have to congratulate the Queen on an incredible 70 years of service. But also, when I came to look it up, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, the 1st of June marks the meteorological beginning of summer, as opposed to that astrological start, which is around the longest day on June the 21st. So the magic, or minor miracle in fact, is that I woke up at 4.30 to hear the birds singing, and as it was already light, I did something that I haven't done for a while, but is a real favourite way to start the day. I went outside in bare feet and stood on the grass and felt the dew and listened to the dawn chorus. And then I went inside and pulled out a random puck of tea and wouldn't you know, it was fresh start, a blend of lemon and fennel to start your day, it said. Hmm, so this day has got off to a pretty promising start so far. And if that weren't enough, we're also entering a new moon phase, which is kind of the springtime of our natural cycles, a time to set intentions and make new starts, which is also pretty magical as this episode is all about the passing of time and new starts. But before we get to that, I have to give a special shout out to my lovely friend, Nikki Maxi, who turned 50 yesterday. Welcome to the Fab at 50 Club, Nikki, and congratulations to Nikki and her husband, Nick, who celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary last weekend by renewing their vows. The ceremony took place in a beautiful church, and it was a very touching moment of contemplation and looking back on 25 years with gratitude and a little bit of self-deprecating humour, both of which I think are essential to any long-term relationship. The evening ended with another first for me, uh, a silent disco, and yeah, the smiling faces said it all for the happy couple as they start their new chapter, which is really so fitting as my guest this week is the fabulous Scott Perry. He's a coach who, through his brand Creative On Purpose, helps his clients who are in the main in the Fab at 50 Club to craft the best third act of their life, as he puts it, and really live their legacy rather than leaving it after they're gone. We talk about the passage of time and that effect that knowing that we're all mortal has on our creative drive. And Scott's got some fascinating ideas to share about how to spark your own creativity and get intentional about that phase in your life when you've already been over there and done some of this and a little bit of that. And now you really can lean into becoming more of you. Comfortable in the knowledge that all the lessons you've learned and the trips around the block are going to come in very handy going forward. I knew I'd love this conversation and I'm pretty sure you will too. Joining me today, I have my friend Scott Perry. 
Scott wears many hats and most of them are creative. He's had a real carousel career, starting out as a teacher and then following his passion for music, first as a side gig to the teaching and then taking the leap and becoming a full-time professional musician. That calling for something more clearly tapped him on the shoulder again when he enrolled in the Alt MBA back in 2016 and was subsequently asked to join Akimbo as a coach where he headed up the freelancers and the creatives workshops. This has paved a way for his next path as a writer, coach and chief difference maker for his brand Creative On Purpose, which offers coaching and community to help clients craft the third act of the life of their dreams. He's also the author of a number of books, including Onward, Where Certainty Ends, Possibility Begins, and Endeavour, Cultivate Excellence While Making a Difference, which starts with the opening questions, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be happy? And how can I be a bit more of both? Scott says of his life and work, I'm not sure that vocation is work you're born to do. I wonder instead if there's only work that you're meant to do right now. Every one of us has the potential to serve and excel in many capacities. His philosophy is not just to leave a legacy, but to live it on purpose. And that is certainly something he seems to be doing himself. So Scott, a warm, warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kat. That was a beautiful introduction. I'm, I'm going to save that and I, I, I didn't realize I had done all that, but that's <laughs> well. That's that's my perception of you from you know what I've seen in in the Akimbo community, and yeah, you, you have a phenomenal website which there will be links to. I'm going to go to this at the end, but I love that you have a book resource. You know, not just your own books, but some really fantastic resources for creatives. And I'm actually just looking forward to hearing more of your take on creativity and finding fulfillment through doing work that inspires you. So let's start with that whole idea of that third act, which you frame as encorepreneur, you know, this, this whole idea of people who perhaps have had the, the corporate career, the job that's paid the mortgage, maybe the kids are leaving home, they have a little bit more flexibility. What's, what kind of led you to that? I have been always a person that's been interested in um, finding purpose and and doing what I whatever I do with purpose and on purpose. Um, you know, and it's a it's a it's a challenging it's challenging because we we live in a world where we're told one of two things: your purpose is out there, you need to go find it. Once you find it, you need to do something with it, or your purpose is inside you, and you need to you know, do the deep work of excavating it. And once you excavate it, you have to figure out how to, you know, bring it forth into the world. And the polling shows that 80% of people when asked, what is your passion or purpose can't identify one, which yeah. means you just by asking that question, you've invited 80% of the world's population to shame and suffering. And, you know, so I just think I've always been really interested and have explored ancient philosophical and spiritual traditions because they are caught up in the same quest as to you know what is a the good life what does it mean to be human what does it mean to be happy how do you be more both and you know what i arrived at is that it's it's not an either or purposes out there or in here it's a both and and that you'll arrive at it more quickly if you do the work right in front of you right now engage mm -hmm. in the conversation right in front of you right now with purpose 
for a purpose on purpose and do that with and for the people that you find yourself with and so for me um that's that's the path and that's its own reward because when you put purpose as a destination which i don't think it is you can get to a destination and once you get to a destination you will i mean how many times have you been fulfilled in your life by getting what you wanted to get you get what you want to get and what do you want you want more yeah or but, something different yeah yeah but if you're invested in the journey if you're invested in the process or the practice as you've experienced in the creatives workshop then you recognize that the journey is the reward the effort is the reward the integrity and intention of how you approach your day-to-day -day practice process life whatever yeah. um that becomes that's that's purposeful living and so yeah that's that resonates so much with me i i, I read that um ernest hemingway had a, an unpublished novel called pursuit as happiness which his mm. family have just released and that phrase just landed it was like if you can find the thing that you want to pursue and the pursuing of it you know as in a goal is something you move from rather than towards it's like just doing the thing is what gives you that sense of wanting to get out of bed in the morning excited and there's something else that you've you've brought into it which is this idea of community this idea of when you bring that to someone else and i'm wondering if that was part of your experience of, of being a mu musician which presumably is very much about performing yeah that's a great question um and yes i mean i spent a lot of my early career as a solo musician um which is a lonely occupation yeah um i re remember having a conversation once at some crappy little dive bar when I was, you know, running up and down the East Coast playing. And uh, he was a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or something. And he was, oh, your life must be so great. You're so free. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, I'm free to sit here for an hour waiting for this guy to write me my check and free to, you know, try to make it halfway to my next gig and fall asleep in a rest area and eat some crappy fast food and sleep on top of my equipment so I don't have to pay for, you know, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. and then at some point I did, um, you know, I just, I just rediscovered the joy of playing in a band and and you know just because of the way i'm built um I, I ended up being you know the the front person of the band and also did most of the booking and most of the marketing and you know it became very clear to me mostly through conversation because i was fairly young when i was doing this working with a lot of older musicians i realized you know at the level that i was at and where I didn't really see myself, um, you know, becoming the next Eric Clapton or anything. I just, you know, you're in this place that I call the messy middle in the music mm. business where it's possible to make a living, but you know, you're probably not going to get a record contract and you're not going to become rich and famous. And there's just a lot of, you know, guys that are the age that I am now that were kind of, you know, bitter and jaded. Hey, I never got the breaks. I never, nobody appreciates my talent. Nobody, you know, we're not playing enough of my songs and that sort of thing. And I was, I was just like, oh my God, I'm, they're going to pay me to do this and I get to do it again tomorrow. This is fantastic. And I just, I kind of made a vow that I'd never, you know, I didn't want to, if I ever caught myself being one of those guys, I was going to just get out of the business. Yeah. And, at a point in my 30s, I did ha catch myself becoming one of those guys. And I remember having a long conversation with myself where I 
realized and or came to to the conclusion that my job really as as a musician and as the leader of of the band um is to do everything i can to help my bandmates fulfill their potential because if i can do that i will be able to fulfill more of my potential and that the real job is to serve the song not make the song serve you that the the your job is to create this moment and to connect with an audience enhance their evening enhance yeah. that moment of their lives and if you do that you will be rewarded and they will they will give you what you need to refill your tank and once i started approach, approaching it with that level of um, gratitude and generosity for getting to do this thing and um, and doing it for someone else. It just became this virtuous cycle where I was, although I was putting out a lot of energy, I was all, always getting enough return to keep my battery filled um, yeah. and could just continue, continue that circuit, continue that cycle. I think that's so insightful because it is about energy and how you, I mean, all of this intentional energy, where you're going to put it. And it can get to be the point where you, you feel like there's no other, yeah, you're, you're giving out, but there's nothing coming back to really, as you say, fill the cup. I'm wondering, you know, I'm always interested with people who have this kind of carousel career. At what point, do do you make a conscious decision to move from this to that or do you find that there's just a, a catalyst a moment where you just go enough mm. how how was that experience for you yeah that's another great question i just want to circle back for a second to that what you were just you were touching on something really insightful about you know so often we are engaged in activities and don't even catch that they are exhausting and depleting us mm. you know but if you if you can bring that awareness that consciousness to hey this you know there's something out of resonance here you know there's a dissonance in my life um there's an un unbalance i'm feeling you know more often exhausted than excited more often depleted than fulfilled that's a signal and i used to always think that that was this gets to your question yeah. i used to think that this is a signal that i'm doing the wrong thing and sometimes that's true, but it's often as the case that you're doing the thing wrong. So yes, yes. when you catch that, that yourself in that feeling of depletion, exhaustion, I think it's worth asking yourself both questions. Am I doing the wrong thing or am I doing the thing wrong? And that has helped me avoid quitting too soon when i should have stuck with it and it has also helped me quit sooner when it, what i was doing was was the wrong thing and you know so this idea that you're you sh the question that you asked about like how do i decide when to move um i think you know this circles back to the what we were saying about purpose i think it also circles back to your original question about the, the three acts of life your first act is when you are young and in school and you are learning and engaged in youthful exploration. And then your second act of life is about career and family. In both of those stages of life, you are following a script that someone else has written for you. 
mm. much of the time you're you're chasing achievements that are are not your inherent innate desires they have been their expectations set by society so you know we we have you know in many ways compulsory schooling that requires you um that's you know that that rewards conformity and winning competition and then we go into work and do much of the same and you know the success we have is you know in our family life is based on the status of that comes with all the stuff you know do, how big is your house what kind of car do you drive what kind of clothes do you wear have you made it in life yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely and so i think that sometimes our calling is associated with our programming and i think always at the heart of it is you know our life is constantly speaking to us because it wants to speak through us this is the idea of vocation this is the idea of calling mm. and the first before you can heed the call of vocation you have to hear it and so i think in part just because i've always spent a lot of time in you know my own company in my head um and have always been really deeply interested in ancient philosophical and spiritual traditions you know i've had this just i don't know that i ever heard it expressed this way but you know for instance the bhagavad gita is a book about calling it's a book about heeding the call of vocation it's a, a book about following your dharma your soul's purpose mm. um, you know stoic philosophy is about doing your duty your duty is to be a human being to live in service of and contribute toward the lives of other human beings and so maybe I've been a little bit more attuned to calling and what I have just noticed over the, you know, just, I mean, obviously when you look like me, the deck is stacked in your favor, right? Yeah, so, yeah. um, you know, I, when I was a teacher, I taught at very, at schools whose name people would probably recognize because they were some of the top private schools in the country when i was a musician i was able to leverage my education and and all the things i had learned um through various jobs and businesses to you know turn something artistic into a professional profitable endeavor and on and on and on i you know there was a I grew up Catholic. I have a lot of guilt around my achievements in life. I feel, you know, I felt, I felt some guilt when I quit teaching at famous right. schools yeah. to go do this thing I wanted to do for myself. And then when I wanted to stop doing that, to spend more time with my family and open a guitar studio, that succeeded. And I felt some guilt around that. And then I wanted to only work four days a week instead of six days a week. And I, you know, I managed to do these things over and over and over again. And at some point, I just, you know, I found heeding the call of vocation easier because every step of the way, I was able to do more and better with and for the people that I cared about, I could have a bigger impact on more soul's lives by moving into my what's next and that helped me have a deeper sense of gratitude for the privileges and entitlements that i had been born into and also um, a greater desire and feeling of responsibility to leverage them to help to broaden 
the privilege and the abundance that's out there so that more people could experience the same. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And I, I, you know, I love what you're saying about, I, I think I have experienced the same, this idea of guilt. I built a business. I, you know, I made jewelry and it had to be a profitable business to make it work. So the difference between a business and a hobby is there's got to be some sales all the time. Um, and at a certain point, you look around and you think, well, what I'm actually doing with my day-to-day -day life is managing people and sorting out social media accounts. And, you know, it's a very tiny bit that's actually talking to my clients about the stories and, and the, the creative bit that got me into jewelry making in the first place, which was this whole idea of making pieces that told people's stories that actually were going to become heirlooms. And it's so funny because I had so much guilt about leaving that behind, but now I can almost do that as a hobby. Um, and that's something I still love to do. I still love to work with people, make just one of a kind pieces every now and again. And, and, and I'm feeling a calling back towards that, but not in a, it, it, what you said about, maybe it's just that you're, you're doing the right thing, but you're not doing it the right way. And what I've created is a life that fits now with, with, the new lifestyle when I moved back to the UK, lots changed, you know, and I needed to be it. So now I work online that works perfectly for me. And I don't have a product based business, which was just exhausting having all these things in, in and widgets to ship. And, and it's so funny that sometimes just that question of, of taking a step back. And I think that's what you do as a coach. You, you help people, find some space to just reflect and get clarity before taking that next. And, it, and it's often, it's not, it's a step into the unknown, which is what Onward's all about. You know, it's that where certainty ends, you don't really know where this is going to go, but you get that clarity as you step towards. And often, I mean, this is an, another question for you. Often it's the thing that you're stepping towards and there's a lot of fear associated with it. So I'm just wondering how much, you said guilt, but how much have you been in a state of fear when you've been moving from one thing to another? Well, I wanna, I, I, you, you shared two really important insights that I wanna just highlight because I think for anybody that is engaged in creative enterprise or wants to turn that hobby or passion into their profession, you, you name two really important things. The first is when you decide to do jewelry for a living or do music for a living, what you don't understand before you do it is that 20% of it is doing your art and 80% of it is taking care of business. And the taking yeah. care of business part is not as fun. <laughs> and the only reason to do it, to, to turn your passion into your profession is if you cannot imagine doing anything else. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was getting into when I became a musician. And then, you know, once I did, there were a few moments in that, you know, almost 30 year career where I was like, I am done. This is this is a grind. This is exhausting. I'm spending, you know, 10% to 80% of my time, you know, dealing, managing bandmates, managing um, venue owners, driving from gig to gig, you know, promoting, getting gigs. And I'm spending, you know, less than 20% of doing the thing I would love that I love to do. And I would put my guitars literally under the bed and say, I'm going to get a straight job. And my wife would always say, okay, I'll give you two weeks. And 
10 days later, I was on the phone hustling up my, I just couldn't not do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have a lot of young people come up to me and say, Hey, I, you know, I just, I love that you did this. I would love to learn how you did that. You know, I would, you know, I want to do this. And I, I always say, don't, (laughs) Really? what do you mean? And I say, you know, it, what you don't yet understand is how hard this is. Mm. And the only reason to do it is if you can't not do it. And there's very few people that can't not do their art as their livelihood. So I just wanted to, to, to highlight that. Um, and then your question was fear. So I have an interesting, more interesting relationship with this than some people because I am the firstborn Leo son, born in the year of the dragon, 1964, to a very tough Irish woman and a very stubborn Polak. I am, my genetics, my DNA is to damn the torpedoes full steam ahead. When I learned my first song on the guitar, I booked my first gig. Wow. Wow. So that's the way that I'm built, which is, you know, I'm a, I'm a weirdo. And, uh, and, and people say, well, that sounds wonderful. And I say, no, because, you know, when, when you leap all the time, expecting the net to appear, you know, you soon find out that sometimes the net doesn't appear and that, you know, you, you can be rewarded for maybe a little bit of thought thoughtful planning, strategic, um, you know, thinking and so forth. So, and I would say that, you know, fear is a many splendored thing. And so I think of fear occurs in three different places. Um, there's the regret guilt that sort of fear that of of the past the story we tell ourselves about the past the stories we tell ourselves about what's been done to us or what we've done um there's the the angst of the here and now that you know things are not unfolding in the way that we would like or that our current situation is not um does not feel feel us with a sense of thriving and flourishing um and then there's the anxiety the fear of what might happen in in the future. And they all exist, you know, and you can, there's all sorts of different names for all all of them, but I think they all exist temporally in those three places, the past, the present, and the future. And they're all signals. Fear is a indication that you are pointed in a direction worth exploring, unpacking, resolving. Um, And if you think of it that way, it becomes a compass, it becomes a friend, and it becomes a wayfinder. And it's, it's a reminder that the real work is, you know, the inner work of, you know, acknowledging the past, um, seeing the possibility in the present and recognizing that in the here and now is your possibility is your opportunity to decide how you're going to frame yourself in your situation frame your choices decide and do what's next and um 
Yeah. So, you know, the, the only, I thought one of the reasons why I love working with people that are in the second half of life, their third act, their second mountain, whatever you want to call it is they recognize that the ultimate end is coming. Yeah. And even though they may not know what it is they're supposed to do with the rest of their life um, or what they were really put on earth for, they recognize that they haven't yet fully unpacked and exploited their gifts and they don't want to die with the difference only they can make still inside. And it can become a, you know, that's, that's not fear, you know, that's a call to action. Um, and so I think that's something that I would say you can leverage at any age against whatever fears and anxieties that you're experiencing is, you know, where, when you are at that moment before your ultimate end, as far as we know, mm. you know, what do you want to look back at, you know, do all the, all the opportunities you didn't take or all the things you did yeah and this is this is back to your idea about living your legacy which is so so powerful i think it's um it's just a sort of reminder you know it's like the the writers used to have a skull on their desk to remind them of their own mortality which is which is a theme i guess is you know we're coming we're of that age now where i'm just reading bittersweet by susan kane at the moment which is all about that sense of our own mortality that relationship we have with the passing of time, which as you say, brings up, sometimes it's regret, sometimes it's um, just this sense of time running out and how that can rise, you know, it can cause you to, to actually start to embrace, um, even if it's not actively being creative yourself, it's your relationship to the way you listen to pieces of music, the way you, watch a movie and actually start to notice, you know, the storytelling behind it and, and maybe moved in different ways as you evolve through life. It's, it's so fascinating, that sort of duality of, we can't have light without dark, we can't have, even in happiness, it's, it's this idea that this is not going to be something that makes you eternally happy. It's that you're easing the pain of, of that, sorrow or remorse at the passing of time by doing something that absorbs you in the in the present and 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 you're looking therefore to the future which i think is so powerful so when you meet with clients how do you i mean you have in your resource list um some great books on creativity but how would you say are some of your top ways of helping people to spark if they say oh i, I don't i don't feel creative i'm not creative what are your sort of go-to resources the first is just to remember, you know, when I, I think, I think our lives are, I had, a, was having a conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz on my show, and she was talking about how she reinvented herself. And as she was telling her story, I, 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 I just realized it's not a story of reinvention. She didn't like burn herself to the ground and arise as this brand new phoenix she she's been on this long journey of becoming mm. and as i reflected back on my own experience and the experience of other guests that um i had the chance to talk to you know i could i could always find a, a through line a theme of their life you know i've always been a really 
I've always been a coach, you know, as a teacher, I wasn't just disseminating information. Yeah. I was helping people, young people think more deeply about their lives and how, you know, what we're learning can inform and inspire who they're going to become. And when I was a musician, I was trying to um, use, you know, reconnect people with the relevance of the, the old music that I played and how it helped, how it can help us all make sense of our own current situation and remind us of our dreams and aspirations. And as a, you know, as a guitar teacher, helping students connect with the power of music making and all the benefits of that. And then, you know, as a coach, just helping people, um, you know, clarify where they are, clarify what, where they want to be, what's really in your way. And then, hey, let's come up with a strategy for how we're going to get you from where you are to where you want to be as efficiently, joyfully, and with as much equanimity as possible. So I think helping people recon, you know, because the creativity piece is the most important piece. We were speaking about this before we jumped on the broadcast. We are, I think we are as human beings, three things. We are inherently conscious creatures. We have an intellect. We have the capacity for reason and rationality, even though we don't always behave reasonably or rationally. Um, but we're aware that we're aware and we have this social imperative. It's why we survived when everything else on the planet wanted to eat us. And it has enabled us to solve not only the difficult um, problem of survival, but to actually dominate the planet, which may not end well for us. No. And we have this creative instinct. We've always been really good at solving interesting problems. Our educational and occupational systems tend to tamp that down or um you know just strip strip that from us and so when a client comes to me and they need to be you know and you you and i both have had this experience i don't have a creative bone in my body i've never been creative and i always say really because there was a moment in your life when you were a fearless creative you know you when it when you were an infant and you wanted to become a toddler, you saw people doing this walking on two limbs thing, and you said that looks like something I would like to do. And you didn't go to school, you didn't watch YouTube videos, you didn't take an akimbo workshop. You did, did it badly it. until you did it well. You created a walker from a non-walker. You did something impossible. Mm. Created a walker from a non-walker, a talker from a non-talker, and you did it by doing it badly until you did it well. That is creative enterprise. Putting something into the world that hadn't existed until you manifested it. Brilliant. And that, you know, our journey of becoming has to be lived in the moment of our being, but we have to remember what we've been and it's that remembrance of what we we've been that will help us become what it is that we want to become so i think that's um you know for me the it's just a reminder if it's it's so true undeniably true on the face of it you know if, if someone wants to continue to deny their creative instinct at that point then they need much more than coaching they they need some profound therapy yeah, yeah, and I mean that's so true. And I love, I love the way you, 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 you 
it's this third act thing, but there's always a beginning, a middle and an end. This whole idea of this three pieces, it's our past, the present and the future. You know, it's, it's a lovely way to structure that sort of whole idea. And for me, it's a, such a powerful question to ask clients, what, what's the thing that you just did as a six-year-old that you didn't, you know, you, you weren't being paid to do, you didn't have to be asked to do, what was it that you were just absorbed by? And often, as you've said, there's a sort of golden thread. Were you playing teachers with your teddy bears? Were you, you know, what was it you were doing that just lit you up? And that can be the little sort of seed, the kernel that, oh, actually, yeah, there was this whole thing. And it's amazing how often just reminding yourself of that essence can spark a whole new conversation around, oh, maybe I'll just do that again, you know. Well, it's, it's also a really important um, empathy tool, right? Because, you know, we all talk about empathy these days and we very often conflate it with compassion and they're different. They mean different things. They're related, but they mean different things. But we all believe that we are so good at empathy, so mm -hmm. good at seeing, hearing and understanding someone else's situation. And, um, and then I can take the compassionate leap to um, try to help them. And yet, if I were to crawl inside your head and listen to the, your the internal conversation you're having with yourself about yourself, I doubt I would characterize it as deeply empathetic or compassionate. But when we remember back, um, I keep a picture of um, myself at age five, um, yeah. I, and I, you know, I love to look at it because I can see me that I, I can see the me that I am today in that five year old. You know, there's, he's happy. He's a little overweight. He's got a <laughs> mischievous glint in his eye. He's, you know, he's ready. He's all in and ready for whatever's going to happen next. And, yeah. um, you know, that little boy started a lemonade stand uh, at age seven and figured out how to clear stock by eight in the morning by getting out there before the garbage men came to take out the garbage and figured out how to get his mom to put up the money and put it in the labor to make the lemonade and his dad to put build a stand and you know put on puppet shows as a kid where i scripted them out and made puppets with my friends and charged admission and you know so there's these things about who i am today as an entrepreneur and a performer again just to what you're saying yeah. and so you know i i just encourage anybody to to, to really reflect back um, because I think you're absolutely right. We really, that journey of becoming starts right then. And mm. the invitation, you know, despite whatever experience you had through institutionalized education or occupation, the invitation and opportunity to reconnect with who you really are and your true soul's purpose is available to you whenever you want to heed, um, to heed that call. And, you know, just the the one tool that I've come up with that seems to have helped the most people is when you're entering this third act and you realize that you want you want to be remembered for more than what your job title and salary was and the size of your house and and you know what school you went to, but you just don't know um, how to go about that. I start people off with a values exercise. Who you really are is are, are your core values, guiding principles, and the vision of the world that you would like to live in. 
Yeah. And if yeah. and then you can take an inventory of, you know, the hard skills that you learned in school and on the job, but also the soft human skills, your inherent talents. We all have things that we just always have had a natural proclivity for. And then where you belong is with people who share your values and need your talents to enhance your lives. And if you can go through that simple three part exercise in a day, in an hour, mm. and you can start to brainstorm you know, what could that entrepreneurial endeavor be? You know, could it just be a platform for selling jewelry or blogging or broadcasting? Or is it a product? Is it a service? You know, we don't know, but you, you have to start somewhere. And I think if you start with who you really are, what you're really good at, and where you really belong, you have a fighting chance to get something off the ground in a very short period of time. Yeah, and interesting that, that that to me is the sort of almost like the Ikigai framework. And I read somewhere recently that we in the West have put that what you're going to get paid for on top of overlaid that onto the Ikigai. And that can add a whole layer of complexity. So it's about understanding that not all of these things will necessarily pay the mortgage for the big house, the status, you know, that I think I think sometimes in the West we kind of conflate the two things and and that's when you're more likely to get somewhere and go, I, I'm not sure if this is where I actually wanted to be. Um, that's certainly, that's been my experience of it. So I, you know, I, we could talk about creativity for, for hours and hours, but I always ask people three to, to sort of relate three stories to me. And I'm really keen to know what came up for you when you were asked about challenge and what has been the challenging part of getting to where you are and being who you are today. The biggest challenge, the biggest challenge is always um, the internal challenge. Uh, you know, one of my favorite books is the Wiz a Wizard of Versity by Ursula Le Guin, and it's a book about um, about dis about managing our shadow selves, right? Because we all we, we all are we're we're multiple things all at the same time, and so you know we are you know we are most often deeply complicit in um, our own suffering and in our and putting our obstacles in our own way, getting in our own way, recognizing that we need to move forward, but deciding instead to stay stuck, mm. um, embracing the status quo and cleaving to it, even when it doesn't serve us, even though we know that more and better is just really a few steps away. And so I, I think the, the, the tool that I use with clients is, you, you know, whenever, whenever you're experiencing stress, challenge, misfortune, suffering, and obstacle, notice, name, navigate. You ha First, you have to be aware that something is, you have to notice that it's going on. And once you notice it, you have to name it. And you have to name it in a way that doesn't fuel stories that are going to inhibit your ability to handle the situation. You have to tell, you know, name it objectively, no adverbs, no adjectives, no value judgments, just this is happening. Is. Yeah. And then once you have named it as plainly as possible, now you can actually frame the, you know, all the possibilities, all the choices and use that capacity for reason to come up with your best guess as to what the best you know the next that you know what the next decision in action is mm -hmm. and 
you know, going circling back to what we said earlier, decisions are not outcomes. The outcomes are not the point. The outcomes will sort themselves out. Your job is to frame yourself in your situation as objectively as possible and make your next decision and act, take the next action with as much integrity as intention as you can. And then you'll be in a new situation and you can rinse and repeat that process over and over. And as long as you do that, you will be making progress. And, um, and to your point much earlier in the show, doing that in community with other people, finding collaborators and, um, you know, I think a lot of our lives is the progress that we make is based on how, how well we construct the routines and relationships in our life. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that, that notice, uh, yeah, notice name and navigate as a way to, when you find yourself in a challenge or feeling stuck is so powerful just as a, you know, it, it brings to mind that whole idea of um, Carl Jung said, if we don't bring the unconscious into our conscious, we'll just carry on with it and call it fate. You know, it's right. just that shift from, is this just what I'm telling myself? You know, I'm defending my own right to be limited here. Um, that's so powerful, really insightful. And then what, what comes up for you with kindness? The reason I always bring kindness into it is because I, I think that for me was the greatest insight of the alt mba and and, and we, were, we were discussing beforehand that if you if you go through any of these programs and you come out with one insight it's kind of paid for itself um and for me it was that kindness is a way i've always operated but i wasn't always leaning into it i was thinking i was um there are times where i needed to put more boundaries in place mm -hmm. and that was actually an act of kindness so it's now become a, it's become a compass, but when I use it much more intentionally, it really helps. It really sort of is a powerful, what's the kindest thing I could do here is, is a good way to sort of help me navigate through different situations. So what came up for you as a story around an act of kindness that's kind of impacted you? Well, I, I think I, I, I love the question and I, it, I think I've been the recipient of just an endless stream of kindness. The you know a recent example from a shared experience is you know, when um, when I graduated from the Alt MBA, I was asked to go through their coaching training program, and I and I really I was thrilled, mm -hmm. and I really wanted to get that gig, and I didn't get. There was only one open spot, and I didn't get it. And I remember feeling really disappointed about that. And I thought on it for a long time. And I remember, um, you know, kind of coming to the realization, I've just been through this transformative experience. Um, and the easiest thing would have been to just go into a, and coach someone else to have an experience like the one I had. But what I really need to do is now that I figured out that I don't want to do what I came into the Alt MBA to do, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> and being a coach is not going to help outcome. do that. Right. And I wrote Seth and I said, hey, I was so disappointed when I didn't get tapped for the gig, but now I realize that the opportunity here is for me to really double down and fully invest in figuring out my next thing. Wow. And he just, he wrote back, you know, in typical Seth fashion, bingo, go, go, go. Yeah. And that 
that was like a, that act of simple act of kindness of returning an email from somebody that probably gets a hundred. He does. He gets a lot and he emails. returns them all. I've, I've written a couple myself and yeah, yeah. you always and, get an answer. You know, I think kindness is really just, it's the result of generosity and gratitude. Mm -hmm. And you said something really profound that I just want to amplify, which is we conflate generosity so often with promiscuity. We overgive. And if you overgive, if you're overly generous, if everybody that calls you gets a return call, if everybody that asks you for a favor gets that favor, you will be depleted and exhausted very soon. And then you'll mm -hmm. be of no use to anybody, including yourself. And so you have to have, you have to practice kindness from the inside out. You have to have those boundaries and guardrails. You have to know what's, you know, what you allow in, what you keep out, who you allow in, who does, is not allowed in. And it's not a perfect science and, you know, but it's something that you get better at through practice. But the other thing is, um, I think, I think of kindness as a, as a default setting, you know, when people say, why are you so nice to everybody? Cause it's, just, it's, it's easier than being not nice to people. You know, have, yeah, yeah. I have been the angry, bitter, jaded guy and it's exhausting. Yeah. You know, if you can just, if you just smile and say hello and ask people how they're doing and you know, when you can, return the caller the favor. And when you can't say, I'm sorry, not right now, it's just yeah. so much easier. And there's, I don't have any static in my head. I don't have any bandwidth taken up by trying to figure out, um, you know, are the scales evenly balanced to, you know, and Doesn't all that matter. sort of thing. It's just, it's just so much easier to, to yeah. choose kindness. Yeah, no, that's so powerful. And, and yeah, insightful that, as you say, just, just one little, response from somebody, I, I think what I learned, you know, that email from Seth, what I often do is if I don't know how to say no or no, not yet, or I can't do that, I just don't answer at all. And that's probably less kind than just a quick response going, I, I hear you, I see you've sent this, but I, I, I'm just not. Well, it's less kind to both, right? Exactly. It's exactly. nagging at you. It's taking up your energy and bandwidth yeah. and that person is waiting. Yeah. Right. So it's, so it's, it's of no service to anybody. Exactly. Whereas, you know, you may say no in a way that is not received in the spirit it was intended, but that, that that's no longer your responsibility. You know, if your yeah. intent was kindness um, and their interpretation was something different, that's kind of on them. You exactly. know, I mean, it doesn't yeah. mean that you can't try to make it right. But at the same time, we all have to take, responsibility for our own interpretations and, and narratives. Yeah, for sure. And, and understanding that it's often, you know, by seeing the best in people, we bring the best in people out. You, you just, it just happens that way that if you, if you assume the best, then people will, you know, often rise to it anyway. So, so that for me, it's, it's, it's not always as easy as I think it is. And there are days where you can do better, but then tomorrow's another day. That's the other thing that I think is one of the kindest things you can say to anyone is there's always tomorrow. Let's just 
draw a line under this and start again, you know? Um, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that everybody is doing the best they can and everybody is doing what they think is right. Does it mean that it's always right? Yeah, yeah. And it's not necessarily always the best they can do. But I mean, we have a lot of, uh, of stressors and challenges and distractions in our lives. And, you know, I don't think anybody wakes up except for, you know, the very rare full-blown sociopath or psychopath. Nobody wakes up and goes, you know what I want to do today? I want to cause some harm. I'm yeah. really looking forward to making some people feel bad today. I, I just don't think that that's the way that most, almost nobody is programmed that way. But there are people that have experienced pain and suffering that don't yet have the resources or um, the support to navigate their way beyond yeah. that, you know, into the hidden wholeness that's resided in them from the very beginning. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I think when you always, if you go back to that little three-year-old, four-year-old, five, you know, that's when you really remember that very few, very, very few people are born without, you know, that just instinct to want to love and be loved and, you know, things go wrong and, and people suffer a lot of trauma and that can have huge effects that we can't really always understand. But um, as a default for me, it's it's definitely, it's it's worked. Um, now, when you were talking about music, I, I was really, you know, um, thrilled that this is a question that I ask everybody about their song, because when I speak to musicians, they just go, man, that's hard. How can I learn? But, but you were talking about how you play old songs. Mm -hmm. And where does that sort of sense of it, that there's a sort of connection to nostalgia, therefore, or sentiment, sentimentality, I guess? I don't know if it's nostalgia. Nostalgia is a tricky one, because so often we're nostalgic about things and telling ourselves a story about the past that's not true. <laughs> There's a lot of nostalgia for the 1950s right now, and I don't want to go back there. Right. Um, but I have, you know, there is a, I, I'm a, I, I love um, a lot of the standards that were written by the Tin Pan Alley writers of the 20s, 30s, 40s. The songs are just so beautifully crafted. And and yes, sometimes, you know, they are racist or misogynistic and, you know, what we would call politically incorrect or insensitive right now. And or a product of, of their time. But, you exactly. Know, a product of their time. And many of them have stood the test of time despite all the changes in, um, you know, cultural changes that have happened because they are just so well designed, engineered. Um, and you know we and 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 they have been open to interpretation reinterpretation reinvention along the way you know if you look at a song like summertime by george gershwin as performed by porgy and bess and as performed by janice joplin you will hear you know that even though it was exquisitely designed at its very conception we have the ability to to refine and, and tweak and, and you know i wouldn't say improve but you know we can for me a lot of my music career was helping people see the continued relevance of old blues songs old mm -hmm. jazz songs mm -hmm. old country songs old rocks i mean i 
you know, when people would ask me, hey, what kind of music are you playing? And I'd always say good music. And, you know, and to me, good music was just good. Uh, it didn't have to be filed in a category at the record store. It, you know, a good song mm -hmm. is a good song because it's a good song. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the old joke, you know, how do you know what's pornography and what's not? And I, I just know it when I see it, you know, and when I hear a good song, <laughs> yeah, I know yeah, it's a yeah. good song. And, and um, I think you would love Bittersweet because it's all about that. It's she's, she, Susan Cain starts from the premise that she loved um, music, especially classical music in a minor key. And that evoked in her even though some people go, why are you listening to funeral music? You know, and she it was in her twenties or Leonard Cohen, which is also quite sort of melancholy music, but it, it's this, it's this idea of you can't have the sweet without the bitter. And it's, it's this, so blues is the same. Um, and yeah, when you said summertime, that's another sort of, it's actually in, in essence, quite a sad song, but it's so, it just elicits a really powerful emotion. Well, they're redemptive, you know, and, and there are, I, I, our grandson was over yesterday. He's a newborn and, uh, I, I sing him blue skies all the time and blue skies is a very happy, hopeful song written in a profoundly minor, sad key. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's just, just exactly what you said. It's, it's all of these things inhabit the same space there is bitterness and sweetness in everyone's life and you get to choose what your relationship is with both of those because if you go all in on the sweet and it becomes saccharine that's not very healthy and if you go all in on the sadness it becomes depression that's not very healthy but yeah. if you can continue to toggle back and forth yeah. uh, between and and embrace again that hidden wholeness that you know what what is it Walt Whitman said? I, I, I inhabit all things, or I, I, I contain multitudes, right? It's, we are all yeah. the, those things all at once. Yeah. The light and the dark. And I bet your grandson, congratulations, by the way, Thank you. will there'll be something in hearing that. Cause I think when, when children are sort of before they begin to speak, they'll remember the, the sound and that will always cause a sort of tug on the heartstrings. It'll be interesting to see whether as he grows up, you know, this is music that he goes, oh, I don't know why, but this just makes me feel whole. It really does. So a song then, a song for the playlist. What what would you um what would you say is going to be a, a welcome addition? Oh boy. Well you can't really see it, but behind me is a picture of Miles Davis. Um Mm. And above above that is a is a painting of Django Reinhardt, um, and the reason why those two artists are behind. I I also have a Billie Holiday um, on a nearby wall, and it's because these are all artists that um, that the critics considered to have very meager talents. Right, Django had two fingers to fret the guitar with on his left hand due to an accident. Um, Miles Davis wanted to be Dizzy Gillespie, but he couldn't play fast and he couldn't play explosively and energetically. And Billie Holiday had, you know, just barely an octave range. And these are artists that fully embraced their quote-unquote shortcomings Lord. and leveraged and amplified them to create a sound that was so 
idiosyncratic and undeniably them that you know we continue to you know like we know all of these artists by their first name you say billy miles django you know who you're talking about wow so i would choose you know one of them and i guess over and over and over again um you know the album i always go back and listen to is um miles davis kind of blue because it, there's a just a that's a wonderful story about creative how you know the creative process can work at its very best and if i had to only choose one song off that album i mean i love all blues but um the song that came to mind first was uh so what so so, so what by miles davis Gosh, which is almost like so be it and just let it be. Yeah, just well, they, you know. they always name those songs like they'd record the song, which they just kind of created in the studio in that moment. And then the producer would say, well, so what's that one called? <laughs> and they, they, they just make up so a name wet. and say, it's called so wet, and, you know, let, yeah, let, let's cut the next song. So brilliant. But the, the motif the, sounds like so what? Ba -da -ba -da -ba -da -ba -da. So what? And sister. You know, yeah. I think it's it's a not a bad attitude to have sometimes. <laughs> and a great um, example of of artists who just did it because they love doing it, doing it for the sake of doing it, doing it for just that creative sort of. Did drive. it in the moment. That whole album was was conceived, written, and delivered. You know, recorded and delivered in just a matter of days. It's it's unbelievable it's the the whole story behind that album is unbelievable and it and all the mistakes are in there they didn't wow. take out any oh, mistakes I love that. Yeah. yeah wow just yeah ship it anyway good enough that is amazing good enough it's plenty good enough yeah and it's endured the test of time i think that's such a great reminder you know that often what preoccupies us is is it's not good enough but that it's just that body of work in the end if you just keep keep putting it in there and yeah keep shipping it out then you leave that legacy and you're living it while you're doing it fabulous and i'm going to add blue skies so blue sky that you sing to your grandson is by oh boy i am not i'm hoping if i put blue yeah. sky into spotify i'll find it <laughs> there's there's a lot of great versions um and i'm thinking that they're I think that there's a version out there by Django Reinhardt, but um, wow. and, I mean, anybody that, uh, you know, I always, I love the really old, old recordings because what we know of the song is what was called the chorus. Like, you know, if you're familiar with an AABA song structure, that's what we think of when we think of the song. But all of those old songs had what was called um, an introductory verse which was often in a different key and was just a very kind of short setup, you know, mm -hmm. for the, the, the delivery of, of the, the, the main course, which is a song. And so, um, that blue skies has a, has a really, um, just a beautiful, um, introductory verse. So if you can find a version that has that, 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 that's always fun. People Happiness. know almost nobody. I'm such a nerd, but almost nobody knows. Even jazz musicians aren't aware that all these old songs have this preamble and that the preamble is as good 
as <laughs> the chorus that they've been playing for, you know, 30 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I love about all of this, whenever you ask someone who's really passionate about anything, you know, any somebody who's really pursued something the way you have with jazz music, blues music, you always hear the stories that are behind that, that often, you know, have got forgotten. And, and, you know, we were talking about the, the fact that when Ridley Scott made, um, what's the, the, the sci-fi movie, uh, Blade Runner, he was given such a small budget that it had to be recorded in one, one studio, one very small studio. He wasn't allowed to go and spend money on doing this. What he was going to do was this sort of flying saucers. And, and so it was that constraint that made it, what it is a very dark futuristic vision and it wouldn't have happened if he'd been given a bigger budget and been sort of given it everyone at the studio was saying nah doesn't sound like it's going to be a goer we'll give him that little room and get him to go and you know do what he can with it those limitations so whenever you talk to people who know so much more about what's behind the 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 outcome you always hear some great stories so thank you for sharing that. And then finally, what would you say, Scott, is your piece of wisdom to add to my collection? We were talking um, about the power of memento mori, which is what you were referring to. This idea, you know, the, the writer that keeps a skull on his desk. Mm. That acts. That idea comes from a practice in the Roman Empire when the generals would return triumphantly and parade through the streets. They would have. Um, you know, it might be a slave or or um, uh, uh, an infantryman whispering in their ear, remember you die, remember you die. And it was a way of making sure that the general didn't get too full of themselves and, yeah. and you know, to exalt too much in their achievement. And um, there's a quote that, that um, one of my favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius, um, well, I'll give you two. So my first favorite by Marcus is remember the humble art that you have learned and take rest in it, which is he's referring to the humble art of living, living well, and the importance uh, and, and necessity to have gratitude for the opportunity and for whatever it is that that life gives you. And then my second favorite quote is think of yourself as dead. You have lived your life now take what is left and live it properly, which is a quote I share with all of my clients, because you are there. You yeah. know, if you're in your third act, this is going to be your final act, right? Plays Absolutely. only have three acts. And so knowing that life ends is the invitation to make it meaningful. Mm. And that that is entirely up to you. That is your responsibility. Um, so yeah, that's those are my two favorite quotes. Oh, fabulous. I'm glad it was Marcus Aurelius because, yeah, that's something I've I've read. You, you oh, he's over him. here too. He's, he's, he's right yeah, over my shoulder. You quote him a lot. And, um, and I think learning from so much ancient wisdom is, is always so powerful. And it's almost like a call to, which is very hard to do, live every day as if it were your last. And what would you do differently if you knew? Because, frankly, you don't would you live it any differently um i think that's so powerful so thank you so scott anyone who's interested in finding out more about creative on purpose and that idea of a an encorepreneurial um chapter third act where can they find you 
Uh, if you go to creativeonpurpose.com, there's plenty of free resources in the blog and the broadcast for you to take advantage of. There's a free quick start guide. So if you want that process for dialing in the difference only you can make and 12 ideas for how you might begin your entrepreneurial endeavor. Um, and if you are ready to take a bolder step into possibility right there on the homepage, you can sign up for a three, uh, a free 30 minute strategy call. And, uh, you know, we'll hop on the phone and figure out where you are, where you want to be and what your next steps might be to, to start to take what's left and live it on purpose. Yeah. Fabulous. That's such a generous offer actually, that you can just really lean into it straight away and just get started. Brilliant. Well, I highly recommend anyone who is listening to this and thinking, maybe I do have something else that's, you know, burning ambition to, to get in touch. But in the meantime, thank you so, so much for giving up your time. It's been such a pleasure to really lean into, yeah, what is a favorite subject for me, creativity and what, what makes us tick as humans. Um, fabulous stuff. Okay, Preston, I appreciate you and the difference that you make. And this, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks, Scott. So there you have it. If you're in that encorepreneur or third act phase of your life, Scott has some really great resources to share with you on his website. One powerful insight I took from Scott's story about that act of simple kindness is just how easy it is to help people feel seen and heard. Seth Godin's a master at that, and it's true that even though he probably receives way more than the average number of emails a day, he always replies with a simple acknowledgement, which in Scott's case contained the powerful message, just because you didn't get picked does not mean that you can't pick yourself. And what happened when he made the decision to do just that is really quite remarkable. I also mentioned my own current obsession, which is Susan Cain's brilliant new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing make us whole. If you liked her previous book, Quiet, then you will love the latest work, which is that same blend of research, storytelling and memoir, and which really explores and reflects on the state we're in when we feel an intense emotional reaction to a piece of music or art or just beauty in nature. And it's that sense of longing that stirs our own creativity. Susan explores the idea that Music, often in a minor key, can help us get into that state where we connect with our truest emotions. So I'm going to leave you with Albanoni's Adagio in G minor, which she recommends as being one of those pieces to do just that. Perhaps you can spend some time in nature, just contemplating those powerful questions that Scott asked. Are you doing the wrong thing? Or are you doing the right thing in the wrong way? What are the things that light you up? And what are the things that drain you? If you start to find those answers, often they can be a compass to what's going to make you happy. Have a great week and enjoy the music.